There we go. Drawing, did they? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we're handing out a hundred dollar. We're handing out a hundred dollar gift certificate today, so. <laughs> but the hundred dollars isn't coming from me, so I don't know who's donating it. But so. Well, we are uh, we are in Romans uh, 16 and approaching the end of the chapter and. Uh, the study sheet I just handed out for next week is for the last seven verses, and we may or may not cover all seven verses in one week, but uh, that's the plan. So, theoretically, right before I leave on vacation, we'll finish the book of Romans. Uh, if not, we'll do it after I come back. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, uh, we were last week, we actually, uh, uh, just, for, just so you'll know, Ron, we covered verses 5 through 16 last week. Wow. We, yeah, we covered uh, 12 verses last week. Uh, so, uh, <coughs> we uh, covered a lot of ground, but it was uh, the list of names there at the end of uh, the greetings that Paul gives in Romans 16. And uh, today we will pick it up in verse 17. And just look at those four verses, 17 through 20. Um, so, uh, once you look back at those uh, uh, verses, verses uh, we started kind of in the middle of verse 5 last week and went through verse 16. Uh, are there any things there that stick out to you? Any names that particularly impressed you last week that we talked about? What are some of the things we talked about last week that... You recall how the the word is penetrated even into the the like household. Okay, okay. We uh, some of these names we're able to, uh, even though they're not names that we're particularly familiar with. Some of them aren't even mentioned in other places, in any other place in the New Testament. Only here, but but just by the the these names and references that we have from. Uh, secular sources from un, from uh, extra biblical sources, uh, we can piece together and gather information on some of these people, and we discover that some of these people are uh, people who are connected, very highly connected. They are in the uh, they are in the families or in the households of people who are who are in the elite, uh, both politically and socially. So some of them are from Herod's, uh, the household of the Herods. Uh, whom you'll remember, uh, some of the Herods were kings and served as kings in Palestine uh, during the time of Christ and then during his life and even during the time of the uh, New Testament church at the beginning of the New Testament church. So, uh, uh, but these, uh, uh, but the family really originate there. They were Jews, but they have a lot of connections in Rome and some of them live in Rome, etc., and some of these people that Paul is sending greetings to in the Roman church are people who are members of the Herodian family or who are attached in some way, either as servants or slaves or whatever, to the Herodian family. Uh, and some of them, as we saw, are, uh, are also connected with uh, Caesar's household, are connected with families that are associated with, uh, with Claudius, uh, some of them, uh, uh, some of them were apparently members of the households of people who were very close to uh, uh, Claudius, who was the emperor just before Nero. And uh, so there are. So what we see is, as uh, as was just pointed out, the the gospel has penetrated into some of these very high levels of society. Uh, both politically and and socially. Uh, what else? Okay. Okay. He mentions that uh, that. Uh, a uh, couple in verse 7, Andronicus and Junius. And uh, as Blake was pointing out, uh, there's some question as to whether Junius is a male or female. Uh, I, lean, uh, I lean towards uh, 
understanding it as a viewing it as a woman, and that would therefore probably make this a married couple. Uh, and the question that arises uh, is, uh, what does it mean if she is one of the leading among the apostles? And uh, and uh, as I explained, it seems like apostleship there is uh, is not a reference to the twelve per se, but is rather a reference to the idea of someone who is uh, a traveling missionary or someone who the word apostle simply means someone who is uh, sent on a mission or someone who is sent with a message. And uh, so it's used sometimes in a very specific technical sense to refer to the twelve, to those who were in authority over the whole church. Uh, And then uh, other times it's used in a more general sense. And it seems like here it's being used in a more general sense as uh, Blake pointed out, sometimes uh, people use this passage to, uh, to uh, uh, argue or to put forth the position that women can have these positions of significant uh, leadership uh, over the church in general. And uh, if they're going to argue that, I think they need to argue it from other passages because I don't think they're going to get it from this passage. What else? Okay, and what about Rufus? Okay, uh, he was uh, he was apparently the son of Simeon of Cyrene. Okay, uh, we mentioned that in the Gospel of Mark, uh, which was uh, presumably written from Rome, uh, there's a reference made to the sons of Simeon of, of Cyrene, Alexander. And Rufus. So there was a Rufus in Rome who was the son of Cyrene, and Paul here in Romans is sending greeting, is sending greetings, sends greetings to Rufus. So most commentators believe this is probably the same Rufus. This is the guy who was the son of Simon of Cyrene, who you remember was pressed into service to carry the cross of Christ. And so some people would speculate that not only was Simon there, but that very possibly his sons were with him. So possibly Rufus was there at the crucifixion. Whether or not that is the case, uh, it would certainly seem uh, logical to assume that Rufus had heard many stories from his father about that whole experience and heard his father talk about it many times. So you have someone here who has very close connection with the events of the crucifixion. Uh, so some of these names, as we go through these names, we realize, you know, when we just kind of read them here in the 21st century and we read down through Romans 16 and we're thinking, I've been working through Romans for a long time. I want to get out of Romans. And so we read through this name, very, these list of names very quickly and we don't stop and think about them. But they are all, uh, they are all people for whom Christ died. And they're all people who have a significant story that connects with other people. I was, I was thinking about this yesterday as I was working on this lesson and I was contemplating uh, the, uh, the passing of, uh, of uh, Kelsey Kennedy this week, her death. And I was thinking about, uh, we were at the funeral, of course, as some of you were uh, this week. And, uh, and I was thinking of that church up there and Edwin was absolutely packed there on the lower floor with people whose lives had been impacted or touched in some way uh, by Kelsey. And, um, and, and I was just thinking, what if, what if uh, a thousand years from now, what if somebody wrote an epistle today, wrote an epistle that was added to the Bible? Of course, we know that's not going to happen, but we're just imagining here. Were to write an epistle and they were, going, and they were writing it to Trinity Baptist Church and they had written it maybe... Uh, a few months ago, and they had sent their greetings to a list of people here at Trinity, and in that list of people was Kelsey Kennedy's name. And somebody reading it then, several hundred years or a thousand years later, reads through this list of names, and they just read about this woman, Kelsey Kennedy, and they don't know anything about her. She's just in the list of greetings, and they just kind of read through it, and it doesn't dawn on them that this is a woman has had a profound impact on many people's lives and whose death, whose passing was such a, uh, in, in a human perspective, from a human perspective, was such a tragic thing. 
and and uh, and and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, a thousand years from now, that name is not going to mean much if you know if we're all still, if the world is still ticking, which I seriously doubt it will be, but. Uh, uh, if someone were to read about it and just see that name, it wouldn't wouldn't register. It wouldn't mean what it means to us today. Okay. Well, that's a thought provoker to me. That's a thought starter to me as I read through these names to realize that every single one of these people is somebody who was who was very special to God. And who was very special to the lives of the people they touched. And uh, particularly, obviously, many of them are very special to Paul. He speaks of them being co-workers or ones who administered to him and uh, ones who were his kinsmen, etc., etc., etc. And so, so as we read through these names, I think it's helpful for us to stop and think, okay, this is not just a list of names. These are real people who really lived for whom Christ died and whose lives had a profound impact on the lives of the people around him. Yeah. Well, so Paul's gone through this greeting. He sent all these uh, greetings from himself to all these different people. And he's about to make a shift here and to begin to, uh, to relay greetings from other people. There are other people who are with Paul here, presumably in Corinth at the time, who want to also send their greetings to the Roman church. And, and Paul is about, to do, is about to relay those greetings from these various people to the church in Rome. But before he does, after he's made, given his own greetings to this long list of people, and before he passes on the greetings that he's received from uh, all these other people, he makes this kind of strange break. <laughs> he kind of just totally changes the subject. And we have verses 17 through 20. Let's read those. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So he kind of makes this kind of almost peculiar break in the context and inserts this admonition or this instruction regarding uh, this idea or this thought about people coming in and causing hindrances and what should be their response and how do they detect them and that sort of thing. And it's such, it seems like such an abrupt change of subject inserted right in the middle of this whole section of greetings that uh, commentators struggle with this. And they go, well, is this, is this something that's been added later? Is this, is this something that, that, you know, it just kind of seems almost out of place? Why is it here? And, uh, uh, and so some commentators do believe that it's, it was inserted later by somebody else at another point. Uh, we have absolutely no manuscript evidence that that's the case. Uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no manuscript evidence we have that this has somehow been added to the text at a later date by somebody else. Uh, so, uh, so given the manuscript evidence, it seems pretty clear that this is something that Paul wrote and that he wrote in this place. And, and so I, I, before I would dismiss it as being something that was from Paul, I would ask myself, why would Paul do this? Why would he stop here at this right here at this point in his in his uh, uh, list of greetings that he's giving and and relaying it and insert this admission? And actually, I think in some ways it comes quite naturally because Paul has just been going through and and again as you can kind of picture the scene that Paul is 
there in Corinth. We think he was in Corinth at the time he wrote this letter, but he's there in Corinth. And as we'll see in next week's lesson, he has a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Tertius who is recording, who is, who is actually working as his scribe to record what he's, or as, as his secretary, to record what he's wanting to say to the Romans. So the, so the, the epistle is actually written by this man, Tertius, as Paul dictates it to him. So, I, you know, I get this picture of Paul kind of just walking around and thinking and talking through these things and, and explaining these things. And Tertius is just scribbling them down as fast as he can go, okay? And so Paul is now at this point in the epistle where he's, he's thinking of all these people in Rome that he knows. And he's, and he's bringing them up. And each time he, each time he brings up a name, he says, oh yeah, Greek. Uh, Adronicus and Junius and you know and 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 and, and greet Rufus and and oh yes his mother who's mothered me and and so as he's as he's going through these greetings I picture him just kind of walking around and thinking of these names and each time a name comes to his mind an image comes in his mind a picture of that person and he thinks about these people and he thinks about how precious they are to him and you'll and as we noted last week he he thinks about and he says something positive about each one of these individuals. So as he's going through this list of names, he's thinking about all these people in Rome who are precious to him. And then you'll remember right at the end, he says, and uh, he, he makes a, uh, the comment there in verse 16, he says, all the churches of Christ greet you. And so he makes a reference to all these other churches that are part and parcel of Paul's ministry. And he sends greetings from them. And so you get this picture that Paul is thinking about all these people who are precious to him. And then, he, and then having talked about all this list of 26 people, and then he also refers to all the churches. And we know from what uh, Paul says in Corinthians that the concern that he has for all these churches weighs on his heart, he says, like a daily pressure. It is a daily pressure that he experiences of his concern for all the churches. So when Paul thinks of these churches, he contemplates how precious they are to him. As he thinks about these people, he contemplates how precious they are to him. But he contemplates also how precious they are to Christ. How precious each one of these people is to Christ. How precious each one of these churches is to Christ. But he says that he, is, he has this weighty pressure on him every day of his concern for the churches. Why would Paul feel that way? Why would Paul feel such a weight on his shoulders as he thinks about all these churches? Well, it's because in Paul's experience in church after church after church after church where he has invested his life, he has seen people come in after him and try to wreak havoc in these churches to try to turn these churches away from Him, to try to turn these churches away from Christ and away from faithfulness to the Gospel. This has been Paul's consistent experience. And remember, you know, we're not talking about the days of text messages and emails and phone calls, right? We're talking about days where it's months or longer if you want to communicate with a church about what's going on, you might write or, or send a message and it's months, uh, many months before you hear. Sometimes close to a year before you hear back. And so you're always concerned, what's happening now? Because <laughs> on the ground, things move a lot faster, don't they? And a lot of disruption can happen in a matter of just a few days in a church. And so these are the things that weigh on Paul's mind. And so what I envision here... Uh, very likely is happening as Paul is contemplating this church in Rome where he's never been, but where there are all these people whom he loves, and there's something else about him we'll talk about in a minute, in a few minutes. All these people that he loves, one of the things he wants to make sure is that they remain faithful. That they remain true 
to the gospel and remain true to Christ. And so to me, as he's thinking through all these names and then he's and then just right there at the end of verse 16, he mentions all the other churches. It just seems quite natural to me that Paul would stop and think about the hazard, the dangers that any church faces. And it would be natural for him at this point to insert this admonition. You've got all these great people here in Rome. And as we're going to see in these verses, the reputation of the Roman church and their obedience to Christ and their obedience to the gospel has spread to all. He says throughout the whole world. He told us that all the way back in chapter 1 as well, that the reputation of the Roman church had spread around the world. And so, his concern is that that not be lost. And that these people that are so precious to him not be turned away. I don't know about you, but I've had the experience of seeing people I love, people that I've discipled, turned away from their faithfulness to Christ. And I'm sure many of you can experience, have experienced that or something similar to that. People that are dear to you, people you love, and they have turned away from the faithfulness to the truth of the gospel and their obedience to Christ. And so it's something we need to think about, isn't it? And it's something we not only think, need to think about for the people that we love, Maybe people we've invested our lives in in one way or another. Maybe people that we've discipled. It's not only something we need to think about for their sake. But we also need to think about it for our own sakes. Scripture says, He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And so Paul here, then it seems to me, naturally goes into this Great concern that he has for all these people whom he loves. And he says there in verse 17, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to teaching which you have learned and turned away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the un." Suspecting, He starts out with that phrase, now I urge you. When was the last time we heard that? He said that earlier in Romans. Exactly. The last time Paul uses this is in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, now I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Okay. So Paul is employing this idea of urging or strong exhortation. It's, uh, the, uh, he, he employs it in areas where this is really important. This is something we really need to give consideration to. This is something we need to, we need to obey. If we don't do this, if we don't do what Paul is saying here, we are being disobedient. It's, this is not an option that we have. It's not that, well, okay, you can keep your eyes on these people if you want to. But this is a command that's equal to the command to present our bodies a living sacrifice. He puts the same kind of emphasis on it here. I urge you, brethren, that you keep your eye on those who cause descendants and hindrances contrary uh, to the teaching you've received. So what he wants us to do is he wants us to be vigilant. He wants us to be to have our eyes open and to be paying attention. He wants us to be on guard. We're going to discover that one of the reasons that people fall uh, victim to false teachers and false influences and destructive influences in the church, the primary reason is because they're not paying attention because they are naive, because it doesn't dawn on them that there are people around who want to destroy their faith, who want to destroy their walk with God, okay, for whatever reason. But those people really do exist. 
They really are out there. And Satan is really about in injecting those people into the fellowship of believers. Putting those people in the fellowship of believers in order to disrupt the fellowship of believers and to cause people's walk with Christ to be hindered. And those are the two things, incidentally, that he mentions here in this verse. He says, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have received. Now, when he says cause dissensions or they cause divisions, the emphasis here is that what these people are doing is they are impacting the unity and the fellowship, the cohesiveness of the body. So his first uh, characteristic here, this one of causing dissensions, focuses on the group dynamic and focuses on the impact that these people have on the group. And the, and the, the impact they have on the group is that they cause divisions. They cause people to split off. They cause people to go their separate way. They cause people to say, I won't fellowship with you anymore. Okay? And, and so it's a, so, so the influence of these kind of people has an impact on the group as a whole. And is deleterious to the unity of the body of Christ. Christ puts so much emphasis and cares so much about this issue of unity. Now, I don't believe that the Scripture teaches unity at any cost. I don't believe Scripture teaches that we must have unity at the cost of truth. But Christ puts so much emphasis on this issue of unity. And in that that final prayer of his that we read about and that we read in John 17, there's this tremendous emphasis. His burden and his concern is for the unity of the body of Christ. And so it behooves us as Christians to be very thoughtful and very careful before we would ever say or do anything that would incline Christians to separate from one another, that would incline Christians to, to be divided or separated or to form their cliques or their parties or their special little groups. We need to be very, very cautious about that because Christ takes that very seriously. And these people are affecting the unity and the cohesiveness, the oneness of the body of Christ. And we'll see a little bit more about how they do that in a a minute. But the second thing he says about them is not simply that they cause divisions, but they cause, he says, hindrances or obstacles. I don't know how your translation translates it, but it comes from the word scandalon. Scandalon reminds us of what? Scandal. Scandal, okay. And we've talked about this word uh, scandal before. It comes up several times actually in Paul's epistles. There are several times in which Paul talks about things which are a scandal. What are some of the things that Paul talks about that are a scandal? Okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, that's true. That's not a that's not a place where he uses this particular word, but that's a good point. But I'm thinking about where where does Paul use this this word? The gospel itself, he says, is a scandal. In First Corinthians, in chapter one, he calls the preaching of the cross a scandal. Okay, it is a stumbling block. It is an obstacle. So if you lived in the first century and you wanted to share with a pagan person or a Jewish person about Christ and about how he was God and he was God's son and how uh, he loved you and, and, and to encourage them to embrace the Christian faith, you might have him with you up until the point in which you said he was crucified. 
And as soon as you said he was crucified, you've lost them. They have stumbled because the preaching of the cross was so offensive to the sensibilities of the culture. Because only criminals and slaves and low, dirty, evil people were crucified. And certainly God would never be crucified. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the preaching of the cross is a scandal. It's an obstacle. It's a stumbling block to people coming to Christ. But he talks about in another place in Romans, uh, back in chapter 9, he talks about how Christ himself is a stumbling block. That it's when we really begin to present Jesus as He really was, He becomes, He Himself in His person becomes a stumbling block. Well, Paul uses this word in another place, and we encountered it in chapter 14, when Paul is talking about the strong and the weak. Remember, we took so much time in that chapter, and we talked about those who were strong of conscience as opposed to those who were weak in their conscience. Now, those... Uh, those who had very, uh, very delicate scruples about various things, eating meat, or etc., 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 and uh, and Paul was warning the strong not to behave in such a way as to cause a scandal, to cause a scandal on, to cause your weaker brother to stumble. So there's there's a there's a scandal which is which is unavoidable. That's the scandal of the cross, the scandal of Christ. But there are scandals which cause Christians to stumble, which cause Christians to sin. And one of those, one of those scandals, one of those stumbling blocks is when we exercise a liberty and we flaunt it in front of someone who doesn't have that liberty and it entices that person who doesn't share in that liberty, entices them to violate their conscience. And when we have enticed someone by our conduct to violate their conscience, we have caused them to stumble. We have, been, we have become to them a scandal, a stumbling block. Okay. Well, now Paul says, using this same word again here, he says concerning these people who he wants them to be watching out for, he says, he says, they are causing divisions in the church, but they are also causing stumbling. They are obstacles. They are causing people who are moving along and getting along in their Christian life and walking with Christ and fellowshipping with Christ and honoring God with their lives to stumble. Because of something they're doing or something they're saying, suddenly this person's walk with Christ has been disrupted or injured or hindered in some way. I, when I first came back from overseas and I was at Indiana University for a while, I was living in the dorms there at Indiana University and I encountered there, it was my freshman year of college, and I encountered there a uh, uh, another fellow who was a freshman and... and uh, uh, and to be honest with you, I, I can't remember whether or not I actually led him to Christ or whether he's just recently been won to Christ. I don't remember. This is 40 some years ago. So, I, you know, I don't remember exactly the details, but I do remember that I kind of I kind of took him under my wing. OK, and he was very excited about the Christian life. He was very excited about walking with Christ. And so I was trying to help him along in areas of Bible study and prayer and, and, and discipleship and that sort of thing uh, in those first few months that we, uh, that we were together. But, but in the course of his studies that he was taking, he was taking classes there uh, on the subject of religion uh, there at Indiana University. Well, you can imagine the kind of stuff he was hearing, okay? And uh, uh, particularly back in the uh, uh, early 70s. And so, so he was... Uh, he was in these religion classes, and over a period of time, all that liberal theology began to poison his mind. And he began to question the authority of Scripture. He began to question the truthfulness of the gospel accounts. 
And after a while, that exuberance and that joy that he had in his walk with Christ was gone. He'd been stumbled. He'd encountered a scandal. And he'd been stumbled. And, of course, before long, he really wasn't all that interested in hanging out with me anymore. Now, I can understand somebody not wanting to hang out with me, but, <laughs> but he was no longer as interested in hanging out with me or talking about the things of the Lord with me. That's a scandal. That's a stumbling block. And, uh, and Paul says that these people do that. Now, there is some debate, uh, some discussion, I should say, more so than debate among commentators about who is he talking about here? Because when we read the book of Galatians, Paul deals with these kind of people. And when we read the book of Colossians, Paul deals with these kind of people. But in Galatians and Colossians and other places where Paul is encountering these kind of people, uh, he, he gives us enough information that we can kind of put a picture together and know who he's talking about. Or at least, uh, at least have a pretty good idea of what, what the substance was that they were trying to communicate. So, for, for example, in Galatians, it's pretty clear there he's talking about the Judaizers. Okay. We know he's talking about the Judaizers. In the book of Colossians, it's not quite so clear. So for some time, some commentators used to think that, uh, that he was talking about the Gnostics, but the reality is Gnosticism didn't really begin to uh, affect the church for about another hundred years or so after that. So if it is, if it is Gnosticism, it's a very, very early form of Gnosticism. But we still get some of those elements that later became elements of Gnosticism. We, we, we get... We can identify some of the things that were characteristic of these people who were influencing the church at Colossae. Okay. But in this case, here in Romans 16, we don't get that. We really get no clue. Is there somebody specific that he has in mind? And so, uh, some commentators do try to identify some specific group, but most of them are content simply to say, that Paul is speaking generally here. He doesn't have a specific person in mind or a specific heresy or false teaching or group in mind. There's no real indication as we go through the book of Romans that, that Paul is really trying to confront any particular false teaching or false doctrine. That's not, that's not really obvious in Romans as it is in Galatians or Colossians. Okay? He's just laying out the truth of the gospel. And he does, he, he, as we saw so many times, he kind of has this imaginary person that he argues with as he goes through Romans. Uh, but it's not like he has some particular person he's gunning for, a particular group he's gunning for as we go through Romans. So what I anticipate, what I, ex what I seem to uh, sense in this passage is not that Paul has a particular group in mind, that in fact, as he looks at the Roman church, it appears to be doing pretty good. Now, they do have this conflict or this struggle between the strong and the weak, but he's already dealt with that very thoroughly in chapters 14 and 15. And very graciously towards both parties. Okay. So, so it seems more that Paul is simply concerned here about what he knows eventually will happen. That eventually there will be people who come in and who try to disrupt the fellowship here of the church and try to and try to communicate things that ultimately will cause individual people to stumble in their walk with Christ. And so that appears to be uh, uh, what what Paul is doing here. Now, uh, of course, it is possible that he does have something, someone specific in mind. But if that's the case, it's very difficult to determine who or what that is. Uh, but you'll notice, he says, they cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching that we've received. Now, we need to remember this is the New Testament church. Okay. Uh, they didn't have the book of Romans until they got this letter. Okay. They don't have the New Testament. The New Testament believers, what they had was they had the teaching of the apostles. Some, some apostle had come into their city 
and preached and taught and communicated to them the life and teachings of Jesus. And that's what they knew. Or they had in either that or in addition to that, they had heard related to them by people they considered to be reliable sources the teachings of the apostles. And so, for example, in the church in Colossae, when Paul wrote Colossians, he had not yet been there and apparently no other apostle had been there. They had apparently heard the gospel by people coming out from Ephesus. Okay, So, so the, the New Testament churches either had the teaching from the, directly from the apostles or they had, they, they had close-hand teaching of people who knew the apostles, who were familiar with the apostles, who were familiar with what they taught, and, and they brought the teaching. And they communicated. And, and all this is communicated orally. So, this is what they have. Is this teaching that has been communicated to them orally. Now, in some cases, in addition to that, they also had letters that had been written to them. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Romans. Okay, They had letters from the apostles that communicated what this faith is that we're preaching. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, So they may have had letters that were written. And in some cases, they, they may not have... Their particular church or individual may not have gotten a letter directly, but they had a copy of a letter that had been written to somebody else. So when the letter was written, for example, uh, to Ephesus, we can presume that it was quickly recopied by, by people and copies of that letter then were sent out to the surrounding churches so that they would hear these things that Paul was writing. So these, this is what constitutes the body of truth that the New Testament church had. But over a period of several hundred years, over a period of about two to three hundred years, the church weighed and thought carefully about, about all these documents they had, these letters that they had, and the Gospels that were written. And, and the ones that the church believed were the closest to and accurately represented the faith once for all delivered to the saints, what Jesus had taught and what was true about His life and what the apostles as His official representatives had taught. When they, as they weighed that out, they came, they, they, they came up, we believe, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, by God's working through the churches, came up with a conclusion that the 27 books that now constitute our New Testament were, were the ones that we could rely on that represent the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The teachings of the apostles accurately representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We call it the New Testament canon. Okay? And so we have this canon. This is now our source. And so when Paul was admonishing the Romans regarding these people who would lead them away from the teaching they had received, in their mind, they have to go back and they have to think, okay, now what have we heard? When people have come here to Rome and they have taught and they have preached, what have we heard? What do we know? And if we have some copies of letters, let's look at those and let's, let's figure out what's in these letters. What do these letters say? And then they had to take anything new that came in and they had to lay it down beside what they already knew and determine whether or not it coincided with what they already knew. Now, we have the New Testament canon. So, it's a little easier for us because we don't have to go back in our minds and recall. It's all written down here for us. So, in one sense, it's a little simpler for us. When someone comes into our midst and begins to teach, we have an obligation and we have a responsibility to take what they're teaching and lay it down beside the Scriptures and ask, does it coincide with the Scriptures? Or does it cause people who are walking by the Scriptures 
up to this point to divide off, to separate, to go after this rather than faithfulness to the Scripture? Or does it hinder their walk with Christ? Do we see that their communion and their fellowship with Christ, their joy in the Lord, their holiness of conduct is somehow impeded by these things that they hear? And if that is the case, if that happens, then Paul says we're supposed to keep our eye on those people who do that kind of thing. And he says we're supposed to turn away from them. He doesn't even want us associating with them. He doesn't want us putting up with them in our churches. Okay? He says you turn away from them. That doesn't sound very gracious, does it? <laughs> doesn't sound very tolerant, you know. In our day and age, we're all about tolerance, right? And, and we're all about love, you know. And it just that doesn't sound very loving to turn away from people. We're also about truth. <laughs> well, we are also about truth. And Paul explains to us why he wants us to turn away from them in verse 18. Because he says, these kind of people... are not slaves of our Lord Christ. But they are instead slaves of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So when we encounter someone whose ministry, if you want to call it that, whose influence causes divisions within the body of Christ, away from the truth of Scripture, or when we encounter someone whose influence causes Christians to lose the vibrancy of their walk with Christ. We discover something about that person. That person is not a slave of Christ. That means they, uh, they don't center on Christ. It's very easy, even for Christians who are really sincere, to get off-centered. It's really easy for us to get focused on something other than Christ, isn't it? I've done it. It's easy for our ministry, our fellowship, our communion to get focused on something other than Christ's life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His return, and His rule. Folks, that's what it's all about. If we take the totality of the Christian gospel, the Christian message, we think of it as a wheel. We've talked about this before. The center of it, the hub, is Christ. And everything else rotates around Christ. Everything relates to Christ. And when that wheel if we want to call it that, of our gospel, that wheel of our Christian life is centered on Christ and is turning on Christ, it works very smoothly. But what happens if you take a wheel or a gear that is intended to be centered on the center but ends up rotating around something that's a little off of center? What do we call that? Okay, out around. There's a technical word. It's eccentric. It's eccentric. Okay. Now, some things are designed to be eccentric. I mean, I was designed to be eccentric, right? <laughs> some things are designed to be eccentric. Okay. 
But the gospel was not. The Christian teaching, the faith once for all delivered to the saints was not designed to be eccentric. But when we, even as Christians, even as sincere Christians, pick some other thing in the Christian doctrine and we make it the center, we go out of, we go out of kilter, don't we? We start going lopsided. And what happens in a machine when you've got a machine that's supposed to be functioning on the center and it gets off-centered, it, some, the gears get worn out and, it start, and it's not rotating evenly on the center anymore, what happens to the machine? It blows up eventually. That It falls apart. That's what happens to our Christian life. That's what happens to churches and ministries that lose the center of Christ. And you can pick the doctrine. You can pick whatever doctrine you want. And you can make that your hobby horse. And you can ride it. And even though it's true, even though it's a part of the teaching of the Scripture, even though it's part of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, when anything other than Christ becomes center, we become destructive. And I don't care whether it's your teaching about gifts or if it's your teaching about how worship is to be done, or if it's your teaching about election, or if it's your teaching about anything. It's your teaching about world missions, about evangelism. When anything other than Christ becomes the center, we become eccentric. And when we become eccentric, we become destructive. Now, these people are way off eccentric. And so they're not serving Christ. They're not, they're not, they're not operating with Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension and His ultimate rule. They are not functioning with that as the, the center of what they're about. Now, they may refer to it. They may talk about it. But it's not central. And so they don't exalt Christ. You don't hear a lot of them exalting Christ because that's not about Christ. And you don't, you don't find them exalting the worship or promoting the worship of Christ. You don't find them really encouraging people to follow the teachings of Christ. These are not things that are characteristic of these people. They've got their own little hobby horse. They've got their own little thing and they're encouraging people to go that direction. And, and he says, so he says they're not servants of Christ because if they were servants of Christ, Christ would be the center and they would be bringing people to Christ and they would be showing people Christ and they would be lifting up Christ. But they're not doing that. And the reason they're not doing that, he says, is because they're not servants of Christ, but they are servants of what? Themselves. He says their own appetites. The word there is bellies. <clears throat> Some of us serve our bellies a little more than we ought to, right? They're servants of their bellies. Now, now most commentators, and I would agree here, most commentators don't see this as strictly a reference to the physical appetite for food and drink that that's not what Paul has in mind but rather he has in mind just the, their feeding their own appetites in the general sense their own lusts and it could be a lust for food and drink it could be a greed for financial or material gain it could be the lust for power it could be the craving for reputation it could be any number of things I've seen people like this who weren't at all. You know, oftentimes we think of people like this who are interested in, you know, making money. But I've seen people like this who have no interest in making money. That didn't seem to be a concern of theirs at all. They just wanted the power. They wanted to have their fingers in everybody's life. They wanted to be the one everybody went to for permission to do whatever. So it doesn't have to be 
material gain in that sense, and it doesn't have to be necessarily food. It could be those things, but it's just any one of those desires that are centered upon themselves rather than Christ, and that's what they're serving, and that's why they do this stuff. And that's why when they come into your churches, they start talking and they start whispering and they start saying, you know, they say this, but, but really, did you know this? And, 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 and they start talking and they, and they try to get a, a party to come after them. They're really party people. And when I say party people, I don't mean the kind of people who put balloons up in their living room and invite you over for cake and ice cream. Okay. In Titus 3, Paul says, reject the factious man after the first and second admonition. And the word factious there is a word that is often translated uh, in some translations as the word heretic. Uh, and that's in our minds when we think a heretic, typically we think specifically of theology or doctrine. But it really is, is, is a more, uh, it's more than that. The idea of the factious man is the idea of a man who seeks a following. He's wanting a following. He's wanting a, a party or a group that follow him. Yeah, the power or whatever, the, the financial gain. Or what they, but they, so what they do when they come into a church is they try to get some people to come and kind of be in their clique, be in their little group. And Paul tells us to reject people like that. So, so it's the idea of it's the idea of, of wanting a following, seeking a following, and bringing in some kind of novel idea or novel teaching or novel approach to the Bible that will cause people to go, "Oh, I never thought of that." Boy, this guy saw it. He's really clever. I think I'll go with him. And I'll think, I think I'll identify with him. Well, how does he do this? He says he does it by smooth and flattering speech. So these troublemakers, when they come into the church, they don't usually come in with a blowtorch and hand grenades. <laughs> okay, that's not how they come. They're really smooth. They're really smooth. Sometimes they're very eloquent. Very smooth, very eloquent. And they love to pump you up. They love to flatter you. And, if, and I found it interesting as I was thinking about this. He says, by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive what? Pardon? What does it, well, what does it say? What it, pardon? The hearts. He doesn't say the minds. You notice that? He doesn't say the minds. He says it deceives the hearts of the unsuspecting. And I was thinking about that. You know, ultimately it deceives the mind, of course. But the way they get to you is they talk real smooth and they flatter you and it makes you feel good. And so your intellectual red flags are lowered or turned off because this person thinks you're pretty cool. And so it disarms you. And being disarmed, you are then susceptible to being misled. I've been married for years. <laughs> I'm not touching that <laughs> with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> so, so Paul's admonition for us is to have our eyes on these people. This means we have to be sharp enough to keep our intellectual, if we want to use that word, our mental armor up means we need to be thinking about the teaching. We need to know the teaching. We need to have it so thoroughly ingrained into us that even when someone comes along and really makes us feel good and then throws a curveball at us, we pick it up. We notice it. 
and we turn away from it. Well, that's only two verses. <laughs> so I didn't even get it to 18 and 19. Or 19 and 20. 19 is critical, and so we'll pick that up next week. 19 is critical because when he says in verse 18, we'll finish 18 next week, when he says these are the hearts of the unsuspecting, the word there, the idea there is the naive, the innocent. Okay. And, uh, and that would seem to kind of throw the Romans in a kind of a negative light because he's saying, now you're going to, because these people out here are deceiving the naive, and you guys are naive. Well, that's really not what he's saying. And he clarifies that when we get to the next verse. Okay. But, just taking what we've talked about today, what we realize now, is, is that if there's not a troublemaker here now, there will be. And these troublemakers are characterized by not being servants of Christ, but rather by servants of their own flesh. And we know that these people... What they do, as Jesus says, we'll know them by their fruits. Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We know them by their fruits. And the fruit of their life is that they cause division in the church. And they cause Christians to stumble. Okay? There's a lot more to be said about this subject. So we'll pick that up next week.